the Endurance Asia podcast. Yo, pick your red up because things ain't that bad. Maybe you should switch the target that you're aiming at. Believe perfection is a beast that they'll never catch. So never waste another day because life moves so fast. And a dream without pursuing, yo, they never last. Another shadow of regret I try to never cast. And always tell a truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Endurance Asia podcast. This week we're joined by Warren Bates, race director of Godzone, hot off the back of an incredible week of adventure racing in an event that we on Endurance Asia voted to be the race of the year for 2022 with um, the 10th edition, the Traverse. Back again, Chapter 11, Fjordland. Wow, what an incredible follow. The fantastic job on the socials from, from the God Zone team. And for those of you that were dot watching, you were in for an absolute treat. And to witness the world's greatest adventure racing team, the world's greatest navigator that we had on last week, Chris Fawn, and pretty much the pinnacle of the uh, of the sport in terms of like all-round athlete leader Nathan Fave put in his final performance as an expedition adventure racer he announced before he went out on the course that this would be his last expedition race and he went out in style what a true legend uh, and Warren does get to honour him a bit in the podcast as well. We talk about a little bit about his career and the impact that he's had on the sport. But really good to speak to Warren, very appreciative of his time. He comes straight off the course, shipping around uh, kayaks uh, to be able to get on the, to get, get on and have a, an interview with us on Endurance Asia. And yeah, he's, in, by his own right, was uh, like elite ad- adventure racer back in the day um, from the UK, now lives in Queenstown and has been running God's Own for kind of the past 13 years or so. And it really once again delivered um, and really enjoyed talking to, to Warren and congrats to him and all his team for putting on another impeccable event that just captured the imagination of the adventure world sport. So with that, here we have Mr. Warren Bates, race director of God's Own. That a truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Hello, Mr. Warren Bates. Welcome to the Endurance Asia podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm pretty good. I'm feeling quite relieved and euphoric and happy that we've just concluded the event and um, knowing that I might get a full night's sleep tonight, which is a real bonus. (laughs) We're literally, I think you've just seen the final final, uh, Pure and Pursuit teams get over the finish line of, of God's Zone 2023. And I always think about like, I've done a bit of adventure racing myself, but I always think for the race directors, it's actually like as tough, if not tougher on you guys than the actual competitors. But how are you feeling right now? Are you like, is it been proper sleep deprivation? Has it been really stressful? What's been the the overwhelming sort of feeling over the last, uh, over the last week? Um, Well, we've done, this is the 11th. So I guess, as they go, this was one of the least stressful um, because we were blessed with some great weather. The course was fantastic and the teams went really well. And 
I think most people come to God's Zone now with their eyes pretty wide open. They know it's hard. And um, I think the preparation that teams are doing is exceptional. And teams are turning up better than they've ever been. And, yeah, I mean, I guess tired but happy. And um, yeah, the last four days on the course are always difficult because we start to get the leaders come through. And then it's sort of a bit of a just a never-ending stream. And it never seems to finish. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I just think, you know, just pleased for the, the host region, the teams themselves, the support crews, the volunteers. Everybody's played their part in delivering probably our best chapter yet. And, um, wow. yeah, I guess I've got a chance now to catch up. I always say the first, the two weeks of God's Zone is probably the worst two weeks of the year for me. And then the two weeks after are probably the best. So that'll be no different this year. Yeah, you're in a state of almost euphoric. And it's the same for a lot of the competitors as well. I mean, look, last year, so we we voted God's Own 2022, the Traverse, as, as the, the race of the year at Endurance Asia. I think that I kind of think of it as the as the epitome of like the, the toughest, not just adventure race in the world, expedition adventure race, but one of the toughest races in, in the world. I mean, arguably, you know, there's so many different endurance uh, endurance competitions out there. Um, but it's interesting you say like the, the level of competition and the, and the standard at which people approach this race, you know, no, everyone knows they can't just rock up to the start line and chance it like you. There's a lot of prep that has to go in from the competitor's perspective, as well as the race directing, which goes without saying. Yeah, and I mean, there's, you just can't. And, you know, we thankfully after COVID now, we have international teams coming back and it's fantastic to see them. And it's really interesting talking to them, some of them who've multi-year experience and, you know, American teams there are just sitting on the finish line with them. They said, we've done World Series races. We went to Eco Challenge when it came back. And they said, it's not even close. They said, Three days of God's own is the same as six days of Eco Challenge. It's just, I think it's the intensity, the technical difficulty, the quality of the opposition, because Kiwis are very good in the backcountry. And just how unrelenting it is, it just weighs on you physically and mentally. And it's really tough. And you've got to get four people through the course together and it's three of you might be great, but if one of you is not great, then it's tough. And last year, we didn't even have 15% of the teams finish. This year, we'll probably be near 50%, which is a massive improvement, but still so really hard. And yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we don't go out there sort of blagging to be the sort of toughest or anything. We know it's tough, but it's, it is almost like the ultimate team challenge. And um, yeah, I mean, you just got to give it a crack and see whether you're up to it. Yeah, yeah. And the this year you went back to Fjordland. First time since 2018, I think, was the last time you'd been in the, in the region. What what made you decide to go back to there? And, and typically, Godzone has always been on the South Island, right? You had that one year, like around Rotorua, I think it was 2019 or so, um, which was, yeah, a yeah. year after Fjordland. But generally, and, and I think... The reason that makes it so tough is just it is the South Island of, of New Zealand is one of the most rugged terrains in the entire world, right? So you know you're going to be putting people through their paces. But sp specifically around Fjordland, what makes it so special? Why did you decide to go back again this year? Um, well, I mean, I guess, I mean, Nathan sort of, 
you know, is obviously a very well-known person with an AR. And he's, I think he said it's like almost like the ultimate adventure racing location. I think the total population in Fiordland, which is a vast area of New Zealand, is only 49. So it's relatively relatively underpopulated. And it's got a wonderful blend of high mountains, rivers, lakes, you know, forests, and multiple different types of, you know, terrain zones, subalpine, you know, glaciers. And it kind of lends itself really well to the variety that we're trying to give teams because we never really want a race to be, oh, it's a trekking section, we do the same, and then there's another trekking section, and then it's more of the same. It's We're always looking for that, a little bit of variety within the course, and it is a very special place. And, um, yeah, we just kind of worked this year. We just decided with COVID and, you know, it's not a million miles away from a lot of us where we live. So we thought, let's, it's, it's, it's it's a good one for us to do but that's do you live in Dunedin or whereabouts do you live I live in Queenstown so it's a couple oh, of, okay. you know, it's a couple of hours down to TR now so um yeah. I guess it's that spine of the southern Alps which sort of goes yeah. sort of on that sort of north south axis of the South Island and you know you don't you know you go on one side of the southern Alps and it's rainforest you sort of get over the southern Alps and it's alpine and then you sort of 50k down the other side and you're into a virtual desert so it's a, such a wonderful variety of terrain and um the team seemed to be inspired by it a bit kind of in all of it i guess it's it's such challenging terrain um but we've kind of done that now and i suspect we won't go back to fjordland for some time now it's kind of done yeah. its thing and uh it's time to go and explore somewhere else yeah and there's plenty to explore and i think that's really the what and we caught up with chris fawn before the race and and he talked about that what's so amazing about this expedition uh, expedition adventure racing is you get to go places that you would never normally go not only would you not be able to access them you don't know if you're allowed to you know a lot of the area zones are restricted and so uh, it's really giving that intrepid opportunity for people to feel like they're kind of explorers back in the day you know in places where not many people have set foot um going into this year Warren what were your expectations around the the teams the like i think there's 40 or so teams or 40 or 50 teams in total um across oh, both pursuit and pure yeah 50 teams in the pure race and 25 teams in the pursuit race so the pure race is like you know very challenging and the pursuit race is maybe slightly not as challenging but it's sort of pretty good testament to you know teams wanting to come through and give it a bit of a taster um and yeah, so for the first time having COVID, you know, pass by and then seeing, you know, a good group of international teams sort of come over and wanting to give the race a go. And we know it's incredibly difficult to go against, you know, Avea and the Kiwi teams on home soil. Um, but I guess if you're a team who wants to prove that you can do it in the ultimate adventure racing location, you've got to come over and give it a crack. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're just... You know, for us, our mantra as a business has always been you're not necessarily to produce the hardest race, but it's to produce the best race. And yeah. so that means, you know, best media output, you know, best experience, looking after the volunteers and making sure the competitors walk off the course going, wow, you know, we, we've just, we've done something out there. And, yeah, that's what we're always striving for. And, yeah, yeah I think I'm hopeful we pulled it off this year. Um, but... 
yeah, I mean, we were very lucky with the weather. So in Fjordland, can be very wet and it could have been totally different, but no, it was good. Yeah. And I mean, the social media coverage was phenomenal. Bells and the team did a great job. It felt like uh, I, I always find when you're when you're dot watching, especially when they're going through like with, with those really gnarly bush treks, you kind of you're looking at it from a 30,000 feet view. But if you've ever been to race before, you can just almost see like you can be there on the ground with them. You can understand like they're moving at less than two kilometers an hour and just understand how tough it must be. Um, but but what were your expectations from the team's perspective going in? Like, I mean, obviously, Team Avaya, you kind of, you know, that they're, they're um, you, you always expect them to be. I mean, they, they've won every race that they've done as that foursome, so you kind of expect them to be winning it. But you know, there's a few teams coming through this year. I mean, even Chris beforehand spoke spoke about no no idea who he said clearly do have an idea, and yeah. uh, you know, then there was like Rob, Rob Preston uh, and uh, was was coming over from Australia as well with with his wife Catherine and their team Thought Sports, and you know, there was um the Estonians were coming over as you say another international team. They're all always do, do extremely well so uh what what was your expectation going in from like the, the pointy end of the course and who the teams that would be challenging yeah well i think you'd be pretty brave to bet against a bayer um it's just they're just such a phenomenal group of athletes and have wonderful synergy and a simplicity and they've been racing for years and yet yeah, I know Nathan pretty well, and there's never in any time over the last decade or more have they ever rested on their laurels and said, you know, we're you know, we're the best in the world, we're done, we just carry on doing what we're doing. After every race of God's own, there is a, a long debrief and a, a look at every aspect of their racing and how they can do what they do better. And, you know, no matter what everyone else has done, people have got fitter, faster, stronger, smarter. But those guys have done the same. So they've never said, well, enough's enough. And what we've tended to find actually in the last two or three years is that if someone's going to innovate and come up with something which is maybe a different way of doing the racing or a different strategy with equipment, it's actually almost always a bayer. So even though they're kind of 10, 15, 20 years into their adventure racing careers and you go, well, they just turn up and they're just faster than everybody else. It's not true. They're just just as good or better than everybody in preparing and improving, even though as they get older, they're not necessarily going any faster as athletes. So I think that's where the other teams have really got to look to step up and say, okay, well, are we debriefing at the end of the race and are we getting the right pack rafts? Do we transition correctly? You know, are we racing during the day fast enough and do we slow down too much at night because we don't navigate fast enough? There's a, so many different aspects of the racing. Did we even pick the right paddles? Were you comfortable enough when you were sitting down in your boat? There are so many things that add up to an adventure race over six, seven, eight days. And they have never sat back and said, oh, no, we're good enough. Let's just stop. Let's stop developing as individuals. They have constantly sought to improve. And I think everybody else knows that now, even the teams that are just fighting to survive and get through the course they know now to achieve a successful outcome at God's own, you have to cover off every base of your preparation. So that's what I said earlier on about the teams being better prepared. So the leaders are doing the same thing. They're coming in and then how do we get to be to be where they are? And I mean, it's pretty impressive with a team that, like No Idea who are coming in in their 20s. They've done two God's Zones now and that is it. 
Yeah. And They've not done any other international expedition racing. No, so, I mean, they, so the Traverse last year was their, was their inaugural uh, yeah, expedition race. And they came second on the hardest course we've ever done. And wow. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've seen a lot of youngsters come through God's own, and that's maybe a unique thing about New Zealand that the, the, the young talent and female talent in New Zealand is unparalleled when it comes to outdoor racing. And I mean, hat, hat tip to Nathan with his uh, spring and summer challenge. For, yeah, exactly. I mean, nowhere else in the world could you have a 100% female adventure racing race. Like, I just can't imagine it with, happening with and being successful anywhere in the world. With 1,500, you know, women doing it who are at all ends of the spectrum, but they're out there doing it. And, you know, we the charts. Yeah, no, we got, there's, there's been, you know, girls racing at the event this week who you know, have been in the top, got in the top 10, who they might go, well, this girl was just literally plucked out of nowhere. The team of three guys needed a girl. They run at this girl from Gisborne. She's turned up and she is just awesome. We don't even know who she is, but there are so many females like that in New Zealand who are incredibly capable. But, and know, on that, actually, we have to call out Team Rub Wahin, who came in fourth, right? Um, Aaron had to sub in Aaron Prince had to sub in for his wife I think she had an injury the week before right do you know what happened to her no I don't know but Sarah was there she was actually um the support crewing oh she ended up being the support yeah Yeah, and Aaron was super keen it didn't take much persuading so yeah you know Aaron's obviously been around you know as long as Nathan you know almost you know he's a sort of incredibly accomplished racer in his own right and he just kind of, of course, said, God, those three girls are incredible. You yeah. know, just so strong and so good. And so, you know, it's testament to the strength of the females in the sport in New Zealand is that there's just so many good, good athletes. Yeah, yeah. I, and uh, to, to finish in top four with a pretty much right, just one guy and three females, I think that's also kind of unheard, unheard of, really. I don't think we've ever seen that on the sort of expedition adventure um, adventure races to have um, that that level of performance. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they had a pretty good navigator in, in, in their team, though, so it kind of is understandable. Um, I mean, so you, you mentioned around no idea in their 20s. One that just stood out for me was, was fear of youth. They came yeah. seventh they're teenagers they're like young whippersnappers like what on earth was going on there yeah it's kind of funny because um finn is one of the guys and now i guess he's might be like 17 or something his dad was racing in one of the other teams and they actually had quite an interesting battle but i guess it again it says something about the psyche of your a lot of Kiwi families is that you're completely at peace with the idea that your son or daughter can go off into the middle of the bush and make yeah. some serious navigation choices. It's bluffy, it's big mountains, there's big rivers, and you're completely comfortable with your teenager going out and doing it, you know, really. Whereas a lot of the Western world would be helicoptering their parent, you know, parent, helicopter parenting over their kids going, I don't think you should go out there. It's a little bit risky. It's like, you know, you've got to believe that your kids are capable and they are a classic example of, you know, going, you know, once they've had got a bit of experience in the outdoors, they can go out there and they're incredible. And um, who knows how good they might be in five or six years' time. 
yeah i mean just following them so the the um two of them are 19 finn mitchell 17 and then joshua's 20 as you say like what what are they going to be like in 10 years time um and so let's let's talk a little bit about the course warren and so i bet you had some fun planning this one out like i and i how long does it take from deciding on location to actually then like building out the course how much how many i suppose weekends or weeks did you spend exploring the region and really sort of uh, uh being out there on the course do you cover the entire entirety of the course yourself or is it like a uh do you have like a group of you which um which do different sections of it how does it kind of work out and planning out um well i mean i guess it's changed a little bit over time i sort of rewind to 2010 2011 we first came up with the idea that we were going to do it was that we probably screwed up an awful lot of pieces of paper and you know you had to refine well I guess I've become better at knowing what will work and the spreadsheets regarding timing have become far more accurate and then really it's I guess like with anything which have, might have six or ten or twelve stages you've really got to try and find the three or four key stages which are like the linchpins of the of the event and then you've got to try and link them in a way which is logical and feels like it's a linear kind of you know there's a logic to it nothing's too contrived you're not doing something just for the sake of it because no team likes going around in a circle just because you kind of think they should do an extra five eyes of biking you've you've got to make it feel like that there's a reason to what they're doing yeah. and i guess we start with those things and then and again I, I i kind of alluded to it earlier on if you've got three trekking sections I guess the way I would look at it is going, you know, me as a former racer, the last thing I want to do is three sections, which are just carbon copies of each other. I'd go, well, let's try and make the first section, you know, the first part of it has lots of checkpoints through the forest, which really put pressure on the teams on that first night in the dark. Because I knew the leaders would get there at dark. Yeah. And then I wanted the first team to be at 1700 metres literally on daybreak so they could see the sun come up and it was like wow. that's my timing you know you've done that first mountain bike you've done the first river paddle you've got this sort of adrenaline excitement happening on that first evening and then it goes dark and then it's on and if you're a navigator you've got to get it right and then the idea being is you've got a big night in the, the mountains and then daybreak all of a sudden you just get that vista across fjordland and we just lucked out that the night before we'd actually had a small wee dump of snow and the teams were out on those high tops and, you know, they're crunching through a couple of inches of snow out of like you know, nearly a couple of thousand metres. And it was just, everyone said the view was unreal. And wow. then so you sort of, that was kind of the first man in stage. And then when we get to the second part, it was more, I wanted it to feel more of a strategic challenge. So we had that option to pack raft or trek. And yeah really and so just just to stop you there so at checkpoint 19 so once you uh you get into the the second big trek of the event uh there was an option and and you at that point you'd sort of pack raft down a part of the river and once you get to checkpoint 19 you had the option to continue pack rafting down the river uh or to be able to trek through the um uh, like through the mountains to onto onto checkpoint 20 and if you left your pack raft there, that was it. You weren't able to get your pack raft back. But then if you keep your pack rafts, it means you've got 20 kg, like two people will carry 20 kg pack across 
pretty much a mountain range like so they're going to be fully loaded up but potentially going to be a lot quicker going down the river at sort of five kilometers an hour and who knows what the terrain's going to be like uh, if you're going to be bushwhacking through there and I did ask the question of um of Chris Fawn we like he messaged me earlier around because they obviously took the option to drop the pack rafts and do the which doesn't surprise me given his navability of being the best in the world but um, I'm interested, before I share what he said, and I'm sure he shared with you already, what, what do you think would have been the quickest route as you were planning it out? Yeah, well, I think it's normally a pretty good um, course plan when I can't or my co-kind of organiser, Adam or Phil, who I do a lot of the recce's with, if they or all of us can't work out quite what we do. And I went in with a bit of an idea and then went up to checkpoint 20 a few weeks before and actually put that checkpoint in up on the mountain. And I was sort of sitting there having a sandwich, looking over Lake Monowai, looking over Fjordland, and going, I still can't work out what I would do. And then I, I kind of came to the conclusion, I discussed with Phil, I said, I think what I would do was if I was in the daytime, I would probably decide based on how I felt our team's feet were going. And if we were in really good fine fettle and the feet were holding up pretty well, knowing that we've got a very long trek later on in the race, I'd probably drop the pat rafts and trek. But then in the daytime, sorry, in the nighttime, given the tricky nature of that navigation on that ridgeline with multiple false tops and ridges going off left, right and centre, I think I would have pat rafted because I think mm -hmm. it gave me the better option to go down make 15 or 20 kilometers of progress and then the trek afterwards yeah it was heavier but really it was pretty much just trending in a southerly direction and yeah. it was it's and, and then it, and i think as well it also it, it massively depended on the ability of the team and what we tended to see during the race is that the first two or three leading teams trekked. Then the next three or four. What time of day was it for the first two or three leading teams? So did they? Well, they were sort of getting there and kind of sort of in that sort of sort of dark sort of time. So they had yeah. tricky, and then the next few teams they all opted to pack raft, and then after that it was a real mix of people. It was just we just couldn't work out which teams were going to do what, and um, what was interesting at the at the back end of the field, the not so strong navigators. As soon as it got dark on that ridge a lot of them stopped and slept because yeah. they just got to the point once you know it was okay on the open tops but once they dropped another couple of hundred meters and they were up maybe eight or nine hundred meters in the bush line a lot of them just went ah we're just going to make a mistake here let's just sleep and yeah. so those guys that are pack rafted just tended to be able to make that little bit of progress so my gut feel was the pack raft was probably marginally quicker um but it really came down to your sort of team strengths. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting uh, the way you think because Chris actually said on reflection, it would have probably been about an hour quicker to do the pack raft. And I think no idea that we're kind of following, following the like, well, came after took the pack raft and ended up catching up a bit as well. I think to your point though, Chris could just absolutely back his nav at night oh, to yeah. know that like they're not going to need to camp out in the middle there. They'll be able to find a way through yeah. the bush in, uh, in, in pitch black. Yeah. I mean, um, you, can't, you can't make a course Chris proof. We've tried. And <laughs> the reality, if, I, if I designed a course that was to test Chris to the whole limit, if you know what I mean, nobody would finish. 
So it's kind of, we almost park that a little bit in the background and say, well, you know, we're not designing a course to Chris and Nathan. You know, we're just, we're expecting them. And in some ways it kind of makes my job a little bit easier because if I go out there and advertise that I think the leading team will take four and a half days, I can pretty much bank on Chris finishing four and a half days because he won't make any mistakes or nothing major. Whereas the other teams have got a far like higher likelihood of doing something which might add three hours here or two hours there. And often in venture races, it's the team that makes the fewest number of mistakes that wins rather than the teams that get all the things right. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a mistake reduction process yeah. rather than you know, like doing something really well. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, and the no idea caught them up there. So coming off the back of that pack raft section and then onto the mountain bikes, I think actually at that TA at that TA there, I think um, Avaya actually took a sleep or took a few hours, took three or four hours. In fact, Chris said that I said like, how did it feel when they went past? Did you know you'd banked up sleep, so you were going to be out? It's like okay, that's fine, you go, but we know we're going to track you down. He said. Typically, that would have been the case, but him and Stu got zero sleep on that. So for three hours, like um, Nathan and um, Nathan was like snoring away. But like, uh, yeah, the the um, uh, Chris and, um, and Sophie did as well. But uh, Chris and Stu are obviously the two lead nav ones, the ones that actually probably need them to be added, like avoid the sleep dev didn't sleep at all so i think they were a little bit like oh gosh we've got uh you know they're giving a little, us a little bit of a push here we need to we need to step it up a bit yeah it's an interesting one i think um i mean one thing i would say which is pretty impressive is is that i mean it's a little bit old school and things have changed a little bit but certainly traditionally you leading teams are often discouraged or discourage themselves from sleeping in transition you know because you know, what you tend to find is, is that it's certainly convenient, um, but often in transition, it can be noisy. There's a lot of distractions and, yeah. you know, you end up with that scenario. Where, yeah, there's a bed there, but there's a lot of hubbub. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of distractions. There's other things going on. And that maybe that two hour stop where you go 15 minutes to get sorted, one hour, 45 minutes to actually sleep becomes a four hour three hour stop and you go, well, actually how much time did I actually close my eyes and shut and actually shut down for? And you go, well, it was actually only 30 minutes. So what no idea did, which I actually think is really shows that they're at least thinking about it is gone. Let's avoid the transition, get in and out of there as soon as we can. And we just go down the road two hours and then we fall asleep and we literally want to put our heads down. And within two minutes, we want to be asleep and we've all got to be ready to sleep. We won't stop until we're all ready to sleep. Yeah. Because the danger is, as you said, you, you fall into that trap of going, all right, well, I'm the navigator, I'm feeling knackered, I need to sleep. And then three of them are going, oh, we're so not tired. You know, yeah. I can't sleep. And then you just lie there listening to someone else snore. <laughs> I know in two or three hours I'm going to be knackered. So yeah. strategically, I like what they did, but I think it's probably, that probably to me showed the differences between Avea and the moment and no idea is that I think on the ground, on foot, no idea can probably go head to head with them in terms of pace. And yeah, they're not quite there at the navigation level, but in terms of over the hills, you haven't met probably no idea, but they're all tall, rangy, strong. They're clearly comfortable carrying big packs. They are going to be crazy fast in the mountains probably where they need to close the gap 
is on the water and a little bit on mountain bikes because Avea are just super strong. Oh, they're unbelievable on mountain bikes, aren't they? I mean, I don't know whether it's what do you think makes them so good? I mean, obviously, like technically, they're all really, really strong riders, but I'm not sure uh, coming off the pack raft section, like how technical was that mountain bike through to the through checkpoint 22 to tw- um through to ta7 was that a technical mountain bike ride or was it kind of just like matching up the point to point the key for that stage and getting it was night time for them was that it's the classic forestry block conundrum where the maps don't always necessarily represent what's on the ground and we deliberately use that forestry for that reason that when you're tired you've got to stay focused and there's tracks on the ground which are not on the map. And what looks like a good track on the map can often be a track that was put in by a logging company 25 years ago and it's since grown over. Overgrown, yeah. The good track is the one that doesn't look like a good track. And so it's almost like an interpretive exercise. And that is where Chris tends to come into his own because he always knows where he is. And the lesser navigators get to a junction and stop and go, I just got to confirm I'm in where I think I am. Yeah. And they get to the next junction and go, I just got to stop and make sure that I'm happy where I am. And that's where Tiki Tour lost time. And they said themselves on camera, well, that was pretty ugly. And that was just them acknowledging that they got some of their mouth through their long, you know, wrong. And you just give up an hour, an hour and a half, you know, whereas Chris just wouldn't have stopped. He'd have just been flowing through every junction without, you know, even batting yeah. an eyelid. And then they're just peeling time off the other teams. So um, that's probably where those other teams really need to sort of step up a little bit and go, you know, and my fear was always on that first paddle section on the first night was Avea will get themselves to the front of the field and get off into the forest and they're gone. Yeah. You know, they just, they're just so quick when they're paddling. So that's well, probably I mean- where those other teams need to pick it up. Yeah, and that's what made it exciting this time round. And it always is exciting dot watching, but that actually, you know, no idea the young team overtakes of Avea kind of halfway through the course. And it's like, okay, race is on. But then on that mountain bike section, and they obviously that the, no idea had a had a bit of a rest. And then and it's it's almost difficult to dot watch um Avea on the on the bike sections because they're just beasting through it, aren't they? Just moving so quickly. Um and then it was through to the next kind of like large trek section, um, which is checkpoint 24 to, to 26. And I think there were a there were a couple of like choice nav bits through, certainly when you sort of went across to checkpoint 25. And there were actually a couple of lines you could have taken up to mm. up to 26. There was kind of two ridge lines which you which you would have taken. And I think for on the recommended course on the uh, um, uh, on the dot watching, you'd recommended the you, you would have thought the westerly course would have been the quickest, and actually Avaya ended up taking the easterly. And what were yeah, what were your thoughts around around that? Yeah, well, I think I mean actually, I'm not saying that I'm particularly devious, but I I, I think since we've we've gone to the supportive <laughs> you're not um, saying you're particularly devious well, apart no, from. <laughs> but i think you know i we we have said to people that you know now we know that it's possible for a support crew to look at live coverage and you know look at where we've tracked the room got you you know what we've done is, is said that you know when there's maybe a route decision to be had between checkpoint 24 and 25 we just make it a straight line on the map yeah and then we might fill a section in to go in between the mandatory waypoint, which is actually at Redcliffe Hut. 
was I was just going, well, I'll just put the route in that I went, but don't necessarily assume it's fastest. They just happened yeah. to be the way that Phil and I decided to go because when we were out there, we were out on a nice day and we were just going, well, we just fancy going up that way <laughs> and the, the scenics will be really good. But it is yeah. quite possible that there will be a faster way to go. And that's that's the beauty of adventure racing is having yeah. teams doing random stuff and it's and it's an interesting point i was chatting to nathan at the finish and talking about the estonians and thought sports and you know how hard it is for international teams to come and perform at god's own and you know his prevailing view is is that is really that so many of the other expedition races everywhere else are trails based exercises where you go to junction turn left go to junction mm. on part in the forest turn right mm. and it's almost the opposite of god's own we actively look to never use a track where possible so a lot of the decision based you know on navigation is is tough and you've got to interpret the land and go do i believe there's going to be a deer trail there will there be windfall on that section which which ridge descending will be the fastest? And if I get into that beach forest at the bottom, will it be clear? And if you know New Zealand, you might go, well, that that area of the forest is in the shade in the winter. It's on that kind of southern easterly facing. There won't be much growth under the canopy. It's probably going to be quick forest. And it's that decision-making which sets the Kiwis apart at home versus the you know internationals. And, you know, Rob's been here from Thought Sports three or four times, and he's obviously got his head around it, but the Kiwis have just got better and better. And, yeah. you know, I think, you know, you, we do put that onus on teams. If you're going to come and race here, you have to prepare properly. You do need a good navigator. And you know, we all saw what happened to Fenix Multisport on the first night in the forest. They went around in circles for two days. And, yeah, that's an absolute shocker. And yeah. you know, they'd said them told you know told us that you know they got strong navigators and they were hoping to get in the top ten, you know, and you know, within 48 hours they were right at the back and lost. And yeah. it just shows how hard it is. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that kind of leads a little nicely on to some of the international teams and uh because I actually and you mentioning that adventure race around before it hasn't you haven't had a support crew there so actually you never really get to because you know you obviously give up your phones from the beginning when you get the before you get the map so you don't and so you never actually see the course that's mapped out on the uh on, on the dot watching but obviously if you've got a support crew yeah i tell you don't you're not going to take the phones off the support crew are you so no, um, no, there's some clear rules around it and usage okay. and stuff like that but i mean it's not a surprise is that if you're a team that's coming in in 15th or 20th, the first thing you do on the, for the, the start of the next section is you talk to the spirit, go, which way did Chris go? You know, yeah. because you want to know and you're going. And sometimes, you know, it's interesting because not they don't all just follow blindly because they might go, well, that's all right for Chris because he knows he's going to get every nav call right. Yeah. Same for like, you know, Aaron, they will make good calls. Whereas another team might go, well, that's all well and good for them because they, they'll get it dead right. I might need a few more handholds or I'm going to follow that ridge line for longer because I don't have... It's a bit clearer. I don't have the confidence to drop down into that system down there because I'll get lost. And once I can't reorientate myself, we'll have a shocker. So you, they might just 
use it as a confidence boost to think that they picked the right thing. Or if there's two very clear choices, um, they might go, well, which way are people going to go? And, you know, I guess that was the interesting thing about the, um, the pack raft and the ridge section. You know, people still, even at the end of the race, were going, no, that's the right way for me. And then the next team would go, no, that's the opposite. We're going to do something completely different. And I think that's one of the charms of adventure racing. You kind of, you know, you live or die a little bit by your own choices. And it's brains and brawn rather than just outright performance, you know, which really makes the best teams. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that does actually make it quite challenging is that because you have to have a support crew as part of a part of the course. If you're coming in internationally, it means you've got like either fly someone else over with you or find someone locally to be able to support. What's your kind of thinking around making sure that like someone has to have a support crew? I, I understand from a logistics perspective, if you're having to move everyone's gear around and you haven't, they haven't got a support crew to move their gear, uh, their gear, it makes it more challenging. You can probably get to a bit more intrepid places by doing it that way. But it does make it more challenging for international teams to, to sort of, organize I'm, yeah. I'm sure you can agree Warren yeah yeah no I, I I would agree with that and it's kind of interesting I mean I guess I'm from a generation of adventure racers sort of where support crews were actually quite common in the early days because of the scale of Gulwar and those kind of events in the Southern Traverse I came over to New Zealand a couple of times to do the Southern Traverse back in the day and it was just part of the process which you had to have a support crew and, and I mean, when um, coast to coast, you have to have a support crew as yeah, part of that as well. Yeah, it was yeah, it was just part of the thing. And I think as races, when 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 Eco Challenged almost sort of died a bit of a death, there was almost a way there because I guess funding or the amount of money or prize money or whatever it was, the commercialization of adventure racing suddenly diminished. There was a need to cut costs or to provide that way of getting adventure races to travel and make it easy for them. You know, you know, how do I make it easier for you? And there's a lot of races around the world that are highly dependent on international teams. You know, they don't have a strong enough domestic market to support yeah. their, their race. And there's still races going on now, you know, at expedition races that have 10, 15, 20 teams and 50% of them might be internationals. And so, they're running on the smell of the smell of an oily rag, if you know. Yeah. They don't have yeah. resources available. And so the way those people have to operate is by going, well, how do I make it as easy as possible? And in New Zealand, it's slightly different. We have a huge number of teams who want to race. And it's almost part of the culture here with Spring Challenge and with Coast to Coast is that support crew is a requirement. And I think we just looked at it three, four years ago and went, you know, we're moving 64 tons worth of equipment. We're moving 400 bike boxes. And it's actually starting to impact how we can deliver a course as a team, as a, as a, as a company. And we're going, we could no longer put a bike stage in that was lot less than 12 or 15 hours long because we simply couldn't get the logistics to move the bike boxes from the start of the leg to the end. So it started yeah. to compromise the experience for us and we we're going not only are we spending most of our race focused on logistics rather than race experience you know it's it's actually hamstringing how we design a course you know yeah. we're thinking more about how do i get a box to the end of it rather than what's the optimal finish point I so get it. actually what we want to do as an organization is provide the best race experience possible and you know, a lot of people have said to us, oh, it's not competitive because 
You know, you've got your Kiwis, they've got four support crew and they've got a vehicle that does this. And I like, I say, honestly, Mark Rayward or this year, Tim Sigma and stuff, they are the support crew for, for Avea. They have one person, yeah. one small vehicle and not much paraphernalia. And so Avea are still coming into transition and doing most of their organising themselves. There yeah. just happens to be one person there who's brought their bikes along put some stuff out, and in 15 minutes, they're gone. Yeah. You know, the only teams that are actually, I've got four, five, six people in their support crew, who are the ones who are just doing it for a ticky tour and who are quite happy to have someone feed them a sandwich and hang around for a couple of hours and then go. So, yeah. I mean, if you're a competitive team at a God zone, you just need one person. And most of yeah. these teams are traveling with a member of family anyway. you just yeah. got to be super slick. Do not use the transition as a resting zone. You use it as a transition from one discipline to the other. And that is it. And so there's no yeah. real disadvantage or advantage. So I would just say that for an international team, it might be slightly more challenging. There will always be a Kiwi person that we will find or you will find who will there who want to be your support crew because they yeah. actually love being a part of it. And yeah. it's take it as a positive because I actually believe the courses are better yeah. for that for that experience and you know and even from a health and safety point of view i mean god's own is harder than all the other races out there expedition races and having a person at the end of the stage who can look at you in the eye scott and say you know what you need a rest you are done you are not ready to go out is yeah. probably an additional level of safety that we've seen in the race where it would be normally down to our medics having to go around and look at a hundred teams and go and not know, know them well enough not or not seen them throughout the whole course to see how they're progressing. Yeah. You know, we can't yeah. realistically put a medic on every transition and you know, it's teams oh. feet are absolutely done. And it's like, oh, I talking of teams feet, there was one of the posts on the God's own social of a, of like a heart shaped blister and they'd put eye and then a heart, which was a, which was basically an open wound on their foot and then God's own. And it's just like that. Oh God, that made me almost throw up seeing that. But um, yeah, they obviously hadn't looked after their feet quite as well as no. they probably should have. No, no, no feet <laughs> are a problem. Feet, bad feet and adventure racing sort of go hand in hand. And uh, if you look well, luckily it wasn't, a, it wasn't a wet week. So it could have been a lot worse on oh. the, uh, on the freak front. If it, um, yeah, if, it, if we could, um, I want to, talk about team of Aya and more specifically around nathan he has at the end of the course or he said just beforehand that this is his his ultimate race this is the this is his final expedition and race and he's uh he's hung up his hat he's uh he's put down his um yeah he's put down his compass and he is going to uh head off into onto the trails what has he meant for the sport and yeah what what's your thought around around nathan and his career um well i guess yeah yeah i've had time to think about it and stuff and it's hard to probably put into words his kind of impact on sports been vast but uh i think you know most other sports out there like football cricket nfl nba a lot of sports are based on personalities. You know, that's your team is, you know, Beckham, Ronaldo, your cricket heroes, and your LeBron, you know, whatever it is, sport is personalities. But I actually don't, adventure racing has never, 
never, certainly not in the last 20 years or so. Adventure racing is about location. It's a unique, it's almost like mountaineering. It's the Everest as opposed to the personality. It's the location takes precedence almost over the personalities, which is kind of unusual in sport. There's probably only one individual that can challenge that kind of standard. How I look at venture racing is about Fjordland. It's not necessarily the teams. It's Fjordland or we're going to Rotorua or it's the... Like, it's almost the same racing. in cycling as well. I think like, you know, it's like the Tour de France or in actually like... A, uh, yeah, I think my, my dad was obsessed about the Tour de France, but more from just watching all the beautiful views of the mountains. Yeah. Didn't really like whoever won it year to year didn't really care, but it was more about the actual the course that they were doing. Yeah. I suppose. It's, I think um, we, yeah, we've kind of always thought about with the chapters and with the location. It's such a key part of the adventure racing psyche and the motivation is that the location and the terrain and the views they really are the the linchpin of adventure racing. But if there's one personality in the last 20 years that has been able to maybe break that or be to rise above it, it's Nathan. No one else has. And I think that's a testament to how people respect his mana, his reputation, his standing, his, you know, the work he's done encouraging all sorts of generations of young adventure racers into the sport, the work he does with those foundations, what he's done with women's adventure racing, with the Spring Challenge, and then obviously at his own performance level, he's probably the only person in the sport who I would say is a legit personality in a, a sport which is actually dominated by that event, environment, or terrain or location. And I think, as I it's a real testament to the, the person that he is. And when he talks people listen when he says something you know he's mainstream news here in new zealand and there's very few other people i say who have that mana or that respect to, to ask him a question and listen and um you know he'll be a big loss and i think it'll probably be the, the last race for sophie as well because i think those two are intrinsically linked as part of the team and i think you know part of her reason for her keep coming back and racing was that she just loved being part of that group of four. And, you know, I've, I've raced for a long time and been lucky enough to see a lot of teams come through God's own. But there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that that is the best group of four people who have ever raced in a team since, you know, the sport began in 1989. There's no better team. And they're going out on top and with no apparent chinks yeah. in the armour. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And you're right. What a way to go out. I mean, I think for most sports, you never see people go out on top, do you? It's always like whether it be, whether it be football, soccer, whether it be I'm a big fan of mixed martial arts or boxing or whatever. They're always just oh, just one more, just one more until they're just like until they're beaten, broken people. And, and it leaves you with the taste of you forget what they were like at the peak. And I think that no one will ever forget just how incredible Nathan has been and what an important sort of linchpin to the sport he's been. And uh, I think it's a, yeah, it's pretty commendable to sort of, to go out winning the toughest race in, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, and it's, he's got a great team around him. All four of them are exceptionally good and talented and they all complement each other. They bring something to the party. 
And I actually, it's incredible that they've raced for so long, but they actually, they genuinely enjoy each other's company and have a good time yeah. out there. We see them at all parts of the course and it's like, they're supreme athletes, they're superbly confident, but they're actually having a good time together. Yeah. You know what I mean? They actually want to be there together. It's not some kind of marriage of convenience where they're there because they're four shit hot athletes and they just it just happens to work. It's like there's four people who actually want to be together. And yeah. they, you know, they they just do it extremely well. And there hasn't been anybody like them. And I the fascinating thing is, is like, okay, that's gonna leave a colossal void. Who's well, and, and that's the question, right? I was I was probing Chris on, you know, I, I, I didn't have the perspective that you have on Sophie potentially uh, not continuing with the team as well. But, you know, what does the future of Team of Ireland? I mean, I can imagine a world in which Nathan is still kind of like chairman of the team. He still manages the sponsors and still is behind the scenes. But who would they sub in for them? I mean, I suggested that Obviously, Chris is good mates with uh, with Aaron Prince as well. Like, just imagine having Aaron in the team as I know he's had that on the team as well. But imagine Stu, Aaron, and Chris as like the three and have the gazers in the team, squabbling, all squabbling over the map, and we do what? <laughs> yeah, fighting about who's yeah. going. You know. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, you can see. I mean, Stu just always is such a lovely guy, sort of strong, silent type in some ways. But um, yeah, you can see Stu and Chris still keep going and. It's going to take some Herculean effort for somebody to beat you know any team with Chris in it, and yeah. we sort of said at the finish line this year that you know really what we should probably be doing to encourage Chris is to, for the benefit of the sport, is you know put him with three hopeless celebrities, and go okay Chris, it's your mission impossible. We are going to give you a chance to pick, you know five or six people from this group of people. And you've got six months or eight months to get them adventure race ready. And you know that you're not going to make any mistakes, but can you make adventure races for them? And we'd all be intrigued to see how well you could make a team like that go, given the fact that you're not going to make any navigation mistakes. So, you know, and it it's, you know, might be a unique opportunity to for him to look at a race in a slightly different way rather than, Go to the front, win it. Go to the front, win it. You know, can the sport benefit from your experience in a different way? Um, but I don't know what they're going to want to do. There's and a TV uh, show right there well, for you. Uh, like, who, who's, the, who's the guy that did Survivor and Eco Challenges? What's his name? Mark, oh, Mark Burnett. You Mark know, Burnett. Guy. There you yeah. go. You need to pitch that one to Mark Burnett. There's a show for well, you. Well, you know, find three good sporting people, maybe people who are tough enough to, you know, like be transformed and, you know, you don't want to make it too contrived, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, I just don't fun. know what they're going to want to do. I mean, Chris has got two young kids now, and yeah. so stupid, you know, and same with Sophie. They're you know they're family people now, and kids yeah. get older. And they get to seven, eight, nine, and all of a sudden the demands from you uh, they need a lot of time, they need a yeah. lot of input, and you know you start to realise your life is maybe the best has passed by, and the the kids yeah. are going to have got everything in front of them, so. I think Nathan's yeah. obviously got to that point and he'll be highly active within the adventure space and will still be influential. Um, yeah. But that tip to him, he's done a lot yeah. for everybody and certainly done a lot for our race. And um, yeah, and no, he's been fantastic and I wish him all the best and Jody in their retirement. And, uh, you know, if you think in a few years time, watch out for his son. Yeah. yeah I've been following him a bit and his daughter. Didn't she just, um, she just did really yeah, well in his spring yeah, yeah, they're all supremely competent in the outdoors. I mean, they're yeah. fantastic on the maps. And, 
you know, I hope we see them at some point, but they're probably quite wisely saying you don't need to do, you know, long races what you're 15, Too 16. Young. You know, yeah. there's a whole lot of other stuff to do first. And if you fancy doing an adventure race, would you be surprised to see Nathan and his kids racing? No. Yeah. That's got to be a dream. That's always, that's been actually one of my lifetime goals is to be able to race with my uh, with my son at some point. Oh, it's a shame that he's not interested in endurance sports whatsoever. But I've got he's only eight now. I've got some years to to convince him. What, <laughs> Warren, what did, when did you stop racing? Was that when did you stop racing? Because you obviously you like you race competitively. You're from the UK originally, but you raced competitively for many years, right? When did you sort of? I suppose once Godzone started, you switched from actual racing to to directing. Yeah, I kind of was still racing. Oh, I can't even remember now. I kind of did. I think I did the last race I would have done was oh, 14, 15. Went to Primal Quest in maybe 15, 16. And, and then I just, I just knew in my heart it was just, you know, I kind of, I don't know, it was maybe a perverse thing. And so when I was working in London, I needed the racing and the outdoors as the release. When you move yeah. to Queenstown and you live, and I can go mountain biking and skiing every day, I didn't have the same desire for the release. It was like, I can do this every day. It's on tap. So then you yeah. look for something else to provide that counterbalance because I live in the outdoors. My kids are all active. You know, I've got mountains surrounding me. I still go mountain biking most days. And that's for me. And obviously setting the God's own course and tramping, I, I, it's all at my fingertips and, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Skiing, and it's like, I don't need to race anymore to provide my outdoor kick. It's it's actually here. And, yeah, it makes um, complete sense. And and actually with that, you've got, uh, you have got another race coming up, your inaugural uh, Australia God Zone. Although I, 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 I take it you've not mapped the course for that. Who, who's been the main? So that's Rob, Rob Preston. And so yep. like Rob, Rob reached out to us some time ago and you know, he's obviously been around the sport for many, many years. He's been a you know accomplished racer. I've raced against Rob, you know, a decade ago, and um, you know, obviously very keen to sort of kick off an adventure race in um, Australia. And um, we were like, sure, and it makes total sense because you know we got a hundred thousand people on social media. We've got all the you know the the website, the, the skills, the branding. It's like it makes it an awful lot easier for you if you use all our templates our systems our yep. social media our branding you just manage the core side of it and yep. we effectively it's, it's duplicating 50 percent of what we do but it's going to be running in australia and we will use our skill set to help you and you as a racer know you know with our assistants how to design a course and what's best for australia so you know, he's obviously highly respected over there and, um, yeah, hopefully it becomes a great success. And, um, you know, really for us, it's just about we want people out there adventure racing and um, anything that just to promote that is a win. Yeah. And and what obviously you've seen the course. What do you think? What do you think about it? It's uh, Are you pretty excited about it? Oh, yeah, no, I mean, Coffs around there and in New South Coffs Wales. Harbor, yeah. yeah, it's spectacular and um Oh, what I like about it, I mean, it's it's, it's just such a contrast to um, New Zealand. You know, we yeah. have Southern Alps, we have our, you know, landscapes and environments, and Australia is very different. And I think we've always treated Australia as about a common market with us, is that it's just as easy sometimes for someone from Sydney and Melbourne to jump on a plane and get to Queenstown as it is from someone from there to get to Perth. 
there's no real difference. And so what yeah. we're really hopeful of is that we can encourage, you know, we're getting a lot of Aussies come to our races and have done for over the years and that we really want to see those Kiwis go, Kiwis go over. And go over yeah. and go, okay, then what have you got over here? Give us that unique Aussie experience. Everything's out there to kill me, you know, type thing. The bush is different. Yeah. You know, it's just such a different flavour. And then get the Aussies coming here, get the Kiwis going there. And with the idea is that, we just want more people adventure racing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're just really about building the God's own brand. We, it's probably the most prominent adventure racing brand out there and certainly the biggest in terms of media and social media. And it's just good to see our brand out there, you know, kind of getting larger. And who knows, we might see other God's own races elsewhere. Oh, sounds like there's, uh, there's some other, something cooking behind the scene there as well. Uh, yeah. Can you share? <laughs> No, no, well, I mean, like, you know, we're obviously looking and stuff, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess for us, it's... What about Fiji? Just, I know we've seen a couple of eco-challenges there. They went back there in 2019, <laughs> like... Uh... Yeah, well, it'd be a nice place for a holiday, if nothing else. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, every every market, you know, there's races going on everywhere, and I think it's been part of the problems for um, expedition races that we have a multitude of brands, but everything's quite small. And, you know, where triathlon has grown ginormous, but in some ways the, in the early days or in its kind of proliferation period, it did so under the under really one brand, which was Ironman. And that has become a unifying brand, you know, everywhere. And, you know, what Expedition Racing has is just just hundreds of little mama and, you know, like one-man yeah. bands, you know, little, you know, husband and wife team running a race somewhere, you know, operating Expedition Races or Adventure Races on you know really meager resources yeah. and you know if you're like a small organization you've got to you know provide health and safety traffic management you know media pr marketing you know health and safety stuff you know force yeah. you know then the whole life coverage platform and you're doing it on the basis of 10 teams entry fee you go you just yes. can't do it it's really tough, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, oh, here in, I'm, I'm based in Singapore and, you know, we've got, uh, we've got a couple of races that have popped up in, in Malaysia, but I think getting people, and there used to be a really, uh, um, a really good one that was in Saba, Saba Adventure Challenge, which was kind of like more of a stage race for, for three or four day rather than expedition style. But then like they, the same event organizers used to run trail running events and they could have like three, 4,000 people do a trail running event and then they'll get 20 teams for uh, uh, right. doing the adventure race, which is way more difficult to organize. And so it's more just around getting more people into the sport, getting them passionate about it. And uh, and yeah, one of the reasons we cover it a lot of it on the podcast is that we want to kind of, uh, yeah, encourage people to get um, to get more into it. It's the for me, the epit- it epitomizes endurance sports in terms of the the multi-sport a- aspects and all the different disciplines and the outdoor adventure and really pushing people to the to the limits, the team aspect of it. It's an incredible sport, and uh, and thank you for putting on one of the best events around the world, if not the best, sort of as we were voted on endurance Asia. Uh, we're excited to see how the uh, the God's Own Australia goes, and um, with, with Rob Preston uh, running it, and then what else you have in store in in future uh, future events. And I hope to be able to come down at some point and, and race it. Although I must admit, I am a bit scared. To be honest. 
You just need to get on a team with Chris and you'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. I can maybe wait. I can maybe be that numpty, one of those numpties that Chris has on his team and uh, <laughs> well, turns into a proper adventure racer. Well, just subbing for Nathan. <laughs> yeah, I fucking wish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Warren, man, I really appreciate it, especially straight off the back of what has been an intense week for you and the team. Congrats to everyone for putting on an incredible event. And uh, and yeah, and appreciate you making the time uh, as well, like and rush back down to the uh, finish line, go and have a few beers with the team and celebrate. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you again, sir. I appreciate. It. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Like the story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad.